So let's talk about the weather patterns that cause these heat waves, right? So a lot of times... <laughs> killing me, Smalls. This is forever to <laughs> I think I, I get the impression you're doing this on purpose because you know I'm going to be doing all the editing. Welcome to the Triple Point Podcast, a podcast for those working at the intersection of weather and climate, technology, and society. We focus on innovators and leaders working to make our communities safe and resilient in the face of a dynamic and ever-changing world. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff Cunningham. And I am Ryan Harris. And in this episode, Jeff and I are back with an informative and entertaining discussion covering the topics of heat on society, cows, and the Muppets. As you might have guessed, the show takes a couple of hilarious turns, but you can be the judge of that. Hope you enjoy the show. How was your trip, Brian? It was awesome. Uh, once in a lifetime trip, that's for sure. Where'd you go? Well, you know, this Johnny Cash song, I've Been Everywhere, man. We're going to recreate that song and create our own lyrics, I think. Route 66, everywhere from Chicago out to LA, hit a whole bunch of national parks on the way back. Did a huge circle up to Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Glacier National Park. Yellowstone, after the major flooding that was up there, luckily we were able to get in there. The media made it like it was a, uh, you know, complete catastrophe. The entirety of Yellowstone was wiped out. I mean, what, what did you see there? So the northern portions were all still closed off. There's two main loops in Yellowstone and the main loop where like Old Faithful is and, you know, there's some other really nice areas, Inspiration Point and whatnot. That was all open. The northern loop was all still closed down when we got there. And so most of that part actually opened back up the day we left. But there are still a couple of roads that were closed. I mean, I remember seeing the pictures of the roads just completely washed out and it is going to take probably you know, several weeks, if not longer, to fix a couple of those roads. I didn't see any major flooding effects down in the main part of the park. Glacier, interestingly enough, it's up in northern Montana. Their main road is this going to the Sun Road, and it's a really curvy, windy, fall-off-a-cliff kind of road that they've had since the 1920s. And they had a really late batch of snow, Normally, they open that road by middle to the end of June. Well, half of it was still shut down when we got there, so we weren't able to do that road. So it's crazy. You've got the heavy late snow and, and glacier. You've got all this heavy rain in Yellowstone. And then the contrast is the excessive heat and drought and water security. So we got to see a lot out west. And then we swung south back home. So, I mean, we spent 38 days on the road and I grew an amazing beard while I was out there. And that's a lot of gas. <laughs> how much uh, <laughs> How much did that cost you? Yeah, so I, I think it's no secret that the gas prices have been extremely ridiculous. So, I mean, we were easily spending at least 60 to $80 a day on gas. While you were traveling around, I got the largest electric bill in my entire life and the local electric co-op that we're a part of the first a thousand kilowatts is charged at about seven and a half cents per kilowatt and then the remaining thousand kilowatts are charged at nine cents roughly per kilowatt and then on top of that 
they charged a power cost adjustment because much of the electricity is generated via natural gas here in Florida. And so they added another three and a half cents per kilowatt on top of all of it. And so I'm not going to say what my electric bill was, but it was massive. And, you know, we have a small horse farm here, different buildings and stuff we have to power, but it was horrendous. So I've been walking around, turning off lights after my kids, lights off, lights off, (laughs) lights off. Has it been hotter down there? Yeah, it has been hotter. Although looking at the map that I'm sharing here, you can tell like we're not in a drought right now in most parts of, of Florida. Um, in fact, which it's is pretty unprecedented. I mean, Florida's had some significant drought issues in the past. Yeah, Florida tends to have a natural dry season in the winter and a very wet season in the summer. I mean, it fluctuates like this annually, but currently there's not a huge deficit of rain, which is good because there are a lot of people in Florida putting pressure on the aquifer as they pump water out. That's a crazy bill. You know, me paying exorbitant gas prices on the road and people are paying higher premiums on their electricity and energy bills uh, because oil prices have spiked. There's a lot of debate in the media and, of course, in the policy realm on really what's causing that. I don't think we're going to get into that debate on this on this podcast. No, I do find it funny that politicians like to claim credit when it's cheap and then like, I can't do anything about it. <laughs> <when it's high." laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and the funny thing is, and this is how weather and climate work, right? I mean, there's levers that are pulled, you know, weeks and months ago, maybe even years ago that affect energy availability and and, you know so they'll take that credit so the bottom line there's just so many complex factors on why energy prices are so high you look at the russia invasion to ukraine there's a lot of energy reserves there in russia being locked up so i'm not an economist i can't predict you know the economic situation but you did stay at a holiday Inn express last week i did stay out at a holiday Inn express last week So I don't really understand that. I'm actually not a very good weather forecaster or climate forecaster either. But when you look at like inputs into a system, generally they follow some laws some processes. Some of that's unpredictable, but, um, you know, you look right now and I'm going to talk about it here in a minute. Uh, you know, what this drought is doing to actual people and farmers on the ground in Texas, right? There are actual things happening to people and to cows. When you were driving around and we were talking about the water out west, there's actual things happening to people and And cows, whatever, and and cows and and whatever else relies on the water out there. There's actual farmers in California that are stopping production so they don't take any more water. They're being paid not to do that. Saw a news thing on that. Okay, you've got Ukraine going on. Something's going to happen to the wheat there. They're like the third or fifth largest producer of wheat. Russia's the number one. So that's coming down the pike. It may not be an immediate thing because we have stores of grain, you know, and stores of of food items in the pantries. There's definitely, I mean, between that and regular inflation, there's definitely impacts going on and and the food security aspects. We're already starting to feel those. So you got that going on. So, So you have the inputs from the climate here in the U.S. There's stuff going on in Europe, which I think you're going to talk about here in a little bit. There's a lot going on. So I, I can't predict what those things are. But what I what I am hoping we can focus on on our podcast here is, you know, 
what's happening to the people right now dealing with the climate. And then, you know, people have to make decisions on whether the climate's changing, right? What are the impact? Like we have to mitigate it. There are real impacts. Now, some of them have been around since we've been around, right? So that's just the way it is. And then, but even uh, before but are, we've been around. Yeah. But there are things that we are doing to the land. There are things we are doing to our water supplies that we can't affect, right? I mean, like that's sort of naive to think that we can't affect some of those things. And, and I'm not suggesting, I, I'm not in one of these, not to get all political. I don't want to, I don't want to damn the past people who made decisions for their livelihood necessarily, but it doesn't mean we can't make better decisions going forward, right? To steward what we have. I listened to a really good podcast on the limits of growth. And in that podcast, I think her name's Gaia Harrington. I'll have to find it. But really, the conversation revolved around our economies around the world are built on growth. And the bottom line for a business is to grow and to make money. And the only way to make money is to grow and to grow and to grow. The problem with that mindset, when a country's GDP is measured on its growth, all of that is predicated on unsustainable growth and using resources that are beyond maybe the Earth's means. And it may not be beyond the Earth's means in our lifetime, but we're on a trajectory here where we are and have been living unsustainably. And I think the weather and climate is giving us some signals that we need to take some more sustainable steps. So to your point, let's talk about those societal impacts. So like my electric bill, right? A couple months ago, I called my electric co-op and I said, hey, I'm thinking of solar. The guy basically talked me out of it, right? Because he's like, oh, it's going to cost too much. What are the crossover points? Blah, 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 blah. Now, as I've reflected on that representation of it, I think they're incentivized for me to keep paying for the electric. Now, it's a co-op, so in theory, it's not, not for profit. But it seems like every institution has a reason to continue itself, right? So, yep. So like, um, but then again, I also think about, you know, there are some toxic things related to, to batteries and solar cell. You know, there I mean, are. Like technology is not perfectly clean. It's not a panacea uh, to fix it all, no, right? You know, wind, wind turbines do kill birds, <laughs> you know? I mean, so there are side effects. And so that that's the other thing. Every choice of mitigation has an impact, right? Yep. You know, I think FEMA, and I can't speak to the specifics on this, it's, it's more expensive to live in coastal areas because they changed something with the fl national flood insurance or whatever. Um, well, that's impacting actual people that have lived there for generations, you know, that don't have the funds necessarily to continue to live there or that, you know, their livelihood has to change. So that's a migration. Now, is it good in the long run? Maybe. Is it good on them personally, family wise? Probably not, you know. Maybe it is. Maybe their descendants won't be flooded out, but but that's an effect, right? I think the bottom line is that there has to be a smart and measured and objective combination of adaptation and mitigation measures. Yes, we need to mitigate our footprint on the earth, but we need to adapt. Humans have adapted since we've been on the planet. We've adapted to different weather and different climate. And so we need to be comfortable being uncomfortable.
our status quo we may not be able to live on that coast that you know we've lived on in generations that river that didn't flood as much generations ago but now is flooding we have to adapt so maybe this is a good time to kind of segue back into the heat impacts we need to certainly do our best to be better stewards of the earth from a mitigation standpoint using measured renewable energy but we have to adapt to a warmer world it's happening all over the world and we're seeing that over these last few weeks especially here in the u.s to europe to india and pakistan back in the spring there's a lot of the earth that is much warmer than normal and much warmer than it's even ever been when you look at some of the temperatures you know like in the uk for instance yeah so one of the you know kind of diving back down into the specific impacts and and again these are sourced from media right so they're these are as good as the media reports themselves but i do have firsthand report from a family member who has contacts in texas they are indeed selling you know cattle early and if we go back to this map i mean the majority of texas is covered in drought now earlier i said i couldn't predict but there are people out there that can predict where we're heading with droughts and so for instance these guys out of the university of nebraska lincoln the drought mitigation center they produce a forecast actually and so they have the current map and then conditions and outlook and on LinkedIn, four months ago, I posted a post that showed the drought outlook for this region and for the whole U.S. And it was, you know, for a pretty extreme widespread drought. So my question is, and I don't have an answer to this, you know, what were people doing to prepare? Did we prepare for that in the short term? And one of the ways, I guess, cattle ranchers are dealing with it now is they're selling off their cattle. There's an increasing demand for beef internationally, which is kind of opposite of what some activists are saying, hey, if we eat less beef, it's going to be better for the climate because of all the things that go into raising cattle, processing. And so because of that demand, it sounds like these farmers are selling off their cattle in less weight than they normally are because of the less availability of of food and wheat and other things for their cattle. I think we're just seeing the early onset of what are going to be some tight times when uh, it comes to food security coming up. Yeah. And and like I said, I don't, I don't know enough to predict uh, cattle futures and all of these things, but um, it seems like at least in the short term, next couple of years, certainly some pressure but there is in the there is industry that that do look at futures for agriculture and livestock the chicago mercantile exchange has a whole climate finance industry built around this kind of thing there's companies that look at that i think we should look into in a future podcast on how the financial industry looks at futures looks at long-term seasonal data like drought So we've talked in a couple of past shows about earth observation technology. There's commercial satellite companies out there that are using not just electro optical visual so that you can see directly through the satellite through, you know, how, how the human eye sees kind of satellites, but there's also ICI that's using synthetic aperture radar to see through clouds, see through the weather to monitor agriculture, to monitor 
and how crops are changing. There's hyperspectral imagery that commercial satellite providers like Planet and Maxar and others are using to monitor that. There's also some interesting stuff on the USDA website. I've always operated under the assumption that east of the Mississippi, Florida had the most cattle. Anyway, you know, from in terms of the what, states, a little bias considering you're from Florida. Well, yeah, exactly right. So that that's the way the I world revolves the world. around Jeff and Florida. Yes. So anyway, so I started looking on the USDA website to find out, okay, where are the cattle? And uh, anyway, when I was looking for that, I found some tables of, you know, how many herds, how many cattle, et cetera, how many calves were born. There's a lot of interesting information on cattle in case you ever want to know. But there's also uh, a lot of geospatial data. You're really into uh, cows in this episode. for, For land use strata. I'm thinking of getting to, you know, given the economics that's right. Um, hey, you know what? To... What what this? What you just this... interrupted me. Are I did, we going to count I, that as an I, interruption? We'll count that as an interruption. It it goes with your. I'm not. Hey, listen. Unlike your interruptions, which like, hey, on another note, I'm actually gonna. I'm actually going to. That's pile because on. I got bored. I'm, with I'm, what I'm, we were talking about. Oh oh no! I think your brain <laughs> just goes squirrel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway, so I think what object. what what COVID and what you know these climate changes are doing for humanity is it's forcing us to kind of get back to how we started as humanity. And it's, you know, there's a lot more popping up in regenerative farming. There's a lot more people getting out and building their own gardens. I think you built your own garden at your place earlier this year. And I grew some amazing romaine lettuce. Oh, great. My, my it... potatoes were good. I had a couple good onions. Um, nice. My corn I hear you're was gonna, pathetic. I hear you're going to sell onions. I might. No, I, I probably won't sell onions. I could sell romaine. My romaine was restaurant quality. What I've learned about gardening in Florida is that it's a lot harder than gardening everywhere else. Um, everything grows really fast, including the weeds. And so I... I'm trying no-till methods and, and ways to, to grow without using chemicals, et cetera. And to kill the weeds, I'm laying out tarps. That's my uh, extreme measure. But now, because it's been raining so much here, I've created a small pond and mosquito breeding farm. Oh, nice. Because everyone loves mosquitoes. I mean... Yes. They're not, they're not a disease vector or anything. <laughs> I try... I try and see the beauty in all of nature, even if I don't like it. So like flies, for instance, even though I don't like flies and people don't like flies, I can appreciate flies because they're there to help break down things. They're hell, they're there to help break well, down. So, so but, check this and out. Vultures, vultures are the same way, but mosquitoes, yeah. not mosquitoes. I think mosquitoes only object in life is to spread disease. I think that's the only uh, thing. But that's the thing. That's the thing. Like, so being out here on the farm, I have observed massive explosions of dragonfly populations. And with that explosion of dragonfly populations, and we also have bats, the mosquito population in the summer is lower right now than it was in the winter. And I think it's because of those two sources you know two predators yeah to the to the mosquito absolutely and the, and the dragonflies when they're when they're flying they swarm and it's just absolutely beautiful so you've lived in florida for 
quite some time, you know, notwithstanding your, your time away in the military, have you, from your childhood to now, do you, do you feel like mosquitoes are more or less of an issue? Well, I spent a lot more time directly in the woods as a kid. And I can say that mosquitoes were very bad in the woods. Uh, but like there, there was one year there was a flood and then like the following year, sometime within the next some period of time, there was a massive explosion of like B-52 size mosquitoes. <laughs> I'm not making this up. They were the largest, most aggressive mosquitoes. I don't know where they came from. I've never seen them before in my life. Like in Florida, you, you typically have like some resident mosquitoes. These were like Alaskan mosquitoes or something that came for holiday. And, uh, and they're like, Ooh, let's eat all the Floridians. I mean, they were just like, <laughs> they were huge and they were bad. I mean, it was so bad. We had a hunting camp over in the Gulf side and it was so bad. We had to leave. I mean, we just couldn't stay. It was, it was I mean, like they were constantly drawing, you know, liters of blood. Would that be a snow mosquito to get the snow birds? That migrate to Florida in the winter? You know, that migration has been going on for well over a century. The snowbird migration. So, like, you go back to Flagler's Railroad that came down from New York. There's a book that a Floridian, I think he's since passed away, and I can't remember his name right off the top of my head, called A Land Remembered. I mean, the, the book is fiction, but there are elements, like historical fiction, right? And he details the founding of Florida from the, you know, statehood, up through the tourist sort of trap that it is in central Florida and, and South Florida. But it talked about all the cattle ranchers in Florida, and, you know, and basically folks that lived off the land because there were a lot of wild cattle from the Spaniards left here. And so there was a whole group of people called the Florida crackers that basically rounded up the cattle for a period of probably 50 years. But they really experienced, you know, Florida and its natural beauty. Then the railroad came down and people from the north just started piling in. And it wasn't really until the air conditioner <laughs> that, that the population exploded. Well, I'm going to spend some time talking about air conditioning here in a little bit. Um, I think that's a... That's well, go, ahead, as, go ahead and as, bring it up. Let's talk about it. Well, let me just say this first and then I'll, I'll transition into air conditioning. But as the climate continues to warm you'll see probably some migration patterns start to pop up where more people are maybe living in northern climates. But then instead of Florida, maybe they're going to be going to the Carolinas or they're going to be going to, you know, I don't know. I don't know anywhere out west where people are going to be able to thrive, um, you know, in the next 50 to 100 years because of the water issues out there. But on the air conditioning piece. That's a really interesting topic when it comes to extreme heat. As I dug into this a little bit more, humans have adapted with this revolutionary air conditioning concept within the last 100 years that there's been a massive uh, explosion in air conditioning availability here in the country. Uh, but when you look at across the world, you know, you look at Africa, India, even China, only half of China's population 
has the benefit of air conditioning. So some may call air conditioning a way for humans to continue to thrive and adapt in a warmer climate. I would argue the opposite. Yes, it's going to help us in the short term survive the ongoing heat waves that we're seeing. But I think it's a recipe for human disaster for two reasons. And there's a good article that talks about at least one of these reasons. One kind of an extremist. My air conditioner is running right now. Yeah. I Meanwhile, I'm sitting out in nature without air conditioning, although I've got a ceiling fan on. But the first issue with air conditioning is the massive amount of electricity that you're using to I can cool your space. In a home, air conditioners, water heaters, dishwashers, particularly if you use the heated cycle, those are your big energy sucks. Like a lot of lights are going to LED, which is a lot less electricity. Well, when you look at your electric bill and it goes up in the summer, it's not because you're using more lighting. I mean, there's more daylight in the day, so you should be using less oh, lighting. It's, the, it's orders the num- of magnitude more for the number for the one reason why your electric bill is so high and why why consumers' electric bills are so high is the air conditioning. It uses a lot more electricity. In fact, okay, but let's talk about how you're. Well, hold on a second. Use- Let me finish that thought, and then we'll go on to where you just brought up. But the United States use of air conditioning, because the United States, I think per capita, has more use of air conditioning than any other country in the world. But the United States use of air conditioning alone accounts for one and a half percent of the entire globe's energy use. And one and a half percent doesn't sound like a whole lot. But when you look at how energy is utilized throughout all these different sectors um, in, in the economy, air conditioning use is huge. So what was the question that you just posed? I was, I was saying in the past, prior to air conditioner, at least in the U.S. and the South, you know, we built differently. Our houses were built differently. They had breezeways. They had wraparound porches. They weren't Imagine that. Tight, we used nature. Tight ventilation boxes, you know, or the, uh, non-ventilating boxes. They were just designed, you know, quite differently. Um, and we used the ground. I mean, we used nature more efficiently. We learned how to use nature. So, for instance, you talked about the breezeways. We didn't have refrigerators for a long time, right? So we put things in the ground. But think about refrigerators. You can't put things in the ground in Florida or a lot of places in the yep. south, though. So, yep. so, I mean, what are some of the goods of refrigeration, though, right? Like food pr- preservation. Yep. You, uh, in some ways, at least when energy's cheap, you know, it makes food cheaper, you know, so perhaps people with less economic means can, in theory, eat better, although that's not often the case. So that's a good point because this article I read talks about India, for instance. Their future demand for air conditioning is 12 times that of the United States in 2050. And that's really that's really crazy. We talked about it in a podcast earlier this year about how hot it is there. I mean, they've got temperatures easily in the hundreds, but unlike you know parts of Texas in the Southwest where you know we've had some significant heat, they have significant amount of humidity, and they're still a developing country. And so, to your point, there are benefits to the technology that we've developed, air conditioning and refrigeration. 
But what happens when those things go away? What happens when, say, Texas, for instance, has to ask consumers to reduce their electricity or they have to have blackouts in electricity because they can't keep up with the growing demand? Their energy systems and infrastructure cannot keep up with the growing demand. That's the first major conundrum with the advent of air conditioning and refrigeration is the exorbitant energy usage. The second thing, in, in my opinion, and this is my opinion, is a maladaptation. So you have adaptation and you have maladaptation. Humans, as the earth warms, if we are leveraging and relying on air conditioning in a warmer planet, then our bodies are not able to evolve and adapt as easily as if we're, I'm not saying we just, you know, get out there and, and suffer through 120 degree temperatures without some modern technology to help cool our, ourselves. But what I'm saying is humans have evolved and adapted for hundreds of thousands of years as the climate has ebbed and flowed in terms of cold and hot. And if we're using artificial means to do that, and we don't have the energy sources to keep up with that as the population around the earth grows, we're going to have a significant issue in the coming decades from an adaptation perspective. And we may not see it immediately, but over time, our bodies are going to become less adaptable to the warmer climates. So I'll speak to a couple things. One, I have an outstanding question in my mind. So right now with the heat waves in the Midwest, I was pulling up some charts there media and various reports were suggesting that there would be additional rolling blackouts or brownouts due to not enough electric capacity to you know supply the grid. And so to avoid catastrophe and, and grid failure, they shut down deliberately certain sections to reduce the power. So a popular opinion is that is due to the increase in renewables. And I don't really know enough about whether that's the case or not. What do you know about it? You're shaking your head like you know about it, but what's, well, what's the deal with that? And, and yeah, do, you I, have, do you have data or is it just an opinion? I, I don't know that I have enough data to make a 100% informed decision on this. But what I will say is there's just unfortunately a lot of things in the media that are used as talking points. Um uh, is that what we're doing here? Because so here is one data point that I am aware of. When you have heat waves, and we, we can talk about the weather patterns that cause heat waves, generally you have a dome of high pressure that has less wind. And so one of the arguments that some pundits and others are making is because certain energy sectors... Um, in Texas or other areas in Europe, I think the point has been made that in Europe, they're suffering because of their move off of fossil fuel energy. I mean, unfortunately, there's a bias. And so when you talk to your energy provider about thinking about solar, he's trying to get you off of that. So unfortunately, there's bias and, and people have agendas. So in this show, I like to think that we're objective and we can talk about both sides. But the, we have our so, own biases, right? You, we, you are we, we biased do. towards certain things. I'm biased towards we do. certain things. We have overlapping biases. 
but there's less wind during weather patterns that are heat waves there's less wind and if there's less wind then there's less wind energy being generated so that's that's an argument but i would argue back that well maybe there's more solar and maybe you're so it's not a, it's not a either or a one or a zero it's not a but like, they may not have solar installed right they may not be part of the renewals right. renewables i don't really know but do they so not have solar installed because they're trying to convince the consumer that you know solar's not the way to go like your energy provider well, did so, so here here's an ironic part of the the wind thing right so I, I don't really have a strong opinion on wind renewable but one of the things that i do know is that it does have an impact on local weather radars so for the areas where there are high wind for renewables and stuff like that or for wind renewables there's also a lot of wind turbine artifacts in the weather radars which impacts the ability to forecast rainfall totals, also severe weather and you know threats and stuff like that. Now, the Radar Operations Center in Norman and, and National Severe Storms Lab, they've worked on algorithms to remove those wind turbines from the radar artifacts. Um, but those spinning turbines are a big target. <laughs> and so they impact a lot of the weather sensing technology. And then there have been some studies, which I haven't really dug into a whole lot, that talk about the effect of turbines on the boundary layer. So like I said, every mitigation has another set of consequences, whether good or bad, you know? And so I think we just have to, we have to look at them all. I don't really know though, the renewables impact on the power grid. That's not something I've completely dove into. I think I'd like to do that at some point. Well, I think, you know, on the wind energy, and I'll have to try and find this study, but there was a study that was showing how, at least recently, wind energy generation has been less in Europe. And they have a lot of wind farms, especially offshore. Wind generation in Europe has been decreased lately because of the lack of wind in, in many cases. So it's an interesting conundrum as the climate changes and we develop technologies like that, there may not be enough wind generation in parts of the world where we're currently putting wind farms and other parts of the world may have more wind. So that's just the nature of how weather and climate changes. Uh, and traveling out West, there's wind farms everywhere. I mean, the West is, it's amazing how much space there is out west without any civilization. And there's just fields and fields and acres and acres of wind farms. And then transitioning to solar, there's a good majority of the population that do want to leverage the benefit of renewables. But what are the unintended consequences? How much water is needed and used to frack for the lithium that goes into batteries, how much water is used to generate solar panels? I think nuclear is something we need to think more about. I mean, I get it. There's potential impacts from power plants and stuff like that, but that's well, one it of took the one, cleanest it, energy sources. It is. It is. And it took one catastrophic earthquake and tsunami for Japan to write off nuclear because of that whole Fukushima disaster back in... 2010 or 2000. That's also like a very high risk area for massive earthquakes. <laughs> so maybe for them, that's the right choice. 
But right. for maybe for parts of the U.S. that that don't experience earthquakes, maybe nuclear power, you know, would be a better option. And maybe it's less expensive. I don't know if it's less expensive. So yeah. that when natural gas prices go up, we're not sticking it to everybody that has electricity. I was going to talk about the weather patterns that cause this. Yeah, what's just for a brief it? moment? Because I mean, talk to me. you know, we talked. Talk to me, Goose. I'm working on it. Speak up. Gonna, I'm not even gonna call. It. Hey, I'm I'm you're Goose. I'm Maverick. Remember, no, I'm no, Tom I'm, Cruise. That's true. You do look like Tom Cruise. Yeah, <laughs> I think you do. I, I don't know about this with this uh, with this beard. I'm, I've got to shave this mustache off though. It's, it's killing me. So we made taco pizza last night, and I put some taco sauce on the taco pizza. <laughs> I'm still like I I can. There's like crust. There's like crusts of taco sauce that are stuffed that is up. Disgusting. So a, a good a, a good friend of mine in Nebraska who I visited on my trip, he's like, "Oh yeah, that's the flavor saver," and oh, I'm like, I'm, <laughs> "I'm like, I've never heard it called that," and I don't know if it's because I haven't grown facial hair in 20 years of being in the military. I guess I could have grown a mustache, but the flavor saver. Anyway, yeah, I had a I had a dairy product. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, and it got it, and it, I couldn't get it off my mustache. I'm like, oh, it's <laughs> yeah. So I'm shaving my mustache. I think this week just so I can eat ice cream. So anyway, so <laughs> freeze dry it. You know, it's bad when bugs and birds start coming towards your mustache <laughs> because they're looking for looking. food. They've got their own food insecurity. So I wanted to deep dive into this. We don't need to weather geek out, so to speak, but... Um, well, I am curious, like, so what, what's going on with the weather? I mean, I, I see the climate outlooks, right? But, like, I haven't looked at the the actual high pressures that are sitting over us. But did did we get a ridge over us that moved to Europe, or is it just everybody's under <laughs> the ridge? So that brings up an interesting point that maybe we could dive into. Everyone's talking about the climate, the climate, the climate. Well, these are weather phenomena. Let's not forget... These are weather phenomena that are happening real time. It's not a climate phenomena. The climate phenomena is that there are more heat waves in general, uh, and they are stronger, more frequent. That reminds me of the Muppet movie, Menomena. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Menomena. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> So, <laughs> so, uh, okay. so we've got to we've got to remember in all this climate change talk that these are weather phenomena, right? So, <laughs> not <laughs> not to be confused with weather phenomena. Killing me, Smalls. <laughs> I get the impression you're doing this on purpose because you no. know I'm going to be doing all the editing on this. All right, I got to think about something else. Uh. <laughs> baseball, baseball. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> well, there you go. So the weather patterns when you get a heat wave, generally you get a dome of high pressure or some kind of atmospheric blocking pattern that blocks the normal flow of things. So the jet streams carrying weather systems all around the globe from west to east in the northern hemisphere. 
And in the central U.S. last week, what we had was what meteorologists call an omega blocking pattern, where you get this low pressure that dives in the West Coast. It ridges up this big dome of high pressure over the central U.S., and then it dives back into a low pressure system off the East Coast. So it looks like the Greek letter omega. So you get this omega blocking pattern. So that's what caused the major heat wave. Um, and I went on to the NOAA's Climate Center uh, to see how many records were broken. And there were hundreds of records broken in just a couple of days all across the U.S., heat records. I thought that might have translated over to Europe. It's natural to think that, I mean, the weather systems translate over to the Atlantic from from the U.S., I thought that, you know, maybe that dome of high pressure might have migrated over there. But actually, it was a different blocking mechanism that was developing as the omega pattern was setting up over the U.S. There was already a cutoff low pressure system off the coast of Portugal that was already beginning to develop. And what that cutoff low does is that creates kind of like a stone in the atmospheric flow where the jet stream is forced to go over that stone and creates a ridge in the jet stream. And so that's what happened in Europe. And it was completely separate from the heat dome that had built in the United States. So what I did some homework and I did some research, I was curious, are atmospheric blocking patterns going to be more prevalent in a warmer world? And what I found in the climate change literature is that it's mixed. There's a lot of complexity in blocking patterns. There's some research that says they're going to be more frequent. There's some that says it's not going to be as frequent, but they're going to migrate further north or they're going to enlarge. So it, it's all over the map. And there's not a whole lot of agreement. Where there is agreement, though, is the Earth is going to continue to warm. And we're going to see more of these warmer event kind of worlds in, in the future. I'm curious uh, if there are any modeling mechanisms that need to be updated. You know, there are different precipitation processes that are happening in the real world that may or may not be properly modeled in our forecast models both climate and weather. And so I think, you know, continuing to do research on the underlying processes is key because some of those processes may change. Weather modeling and climate modeling are complex. There are just so many factors that go into them. I mean, it's chaos for a reason. We use physics to try and describe what the atmosphere might do. But the main problem we have is we don't have observations at the molecular level all around the world. If we did, we'd have a perfect initialization for the model to use. And so one of the main issues, particularly with climate models and weather models, is our ability to develop and dissipate clouds. And the cloud feedbacks within weather and climate models are not well understood, particularly in climate models. And when you think about it, that's a huge deal if we don't understand how clouds are going to change in the future, because clouds do a lot to reflect solar energy. They also do a lot to retain solar energy, particularly at night, um, and act as, as a little more of a, of, of a blanket at night. I'd like to qualify that comment. I think we do have a better understanding than we've ever had on cloud and precipitation processes. I think when you dig in, like the research in, group in, I came in, out of, 
in weather models or both? So our, our community is kind of segmented. Well, there's different groups of people doing different things, but there's generally the observationalists and then there are the modelers, right? In weather and climate, there are people that are trying to, you know, merge the two. So I know observationalists that use a lot of instrumentation to measure what's going on in the cloud processes, whether that's earth-based radar, um, satellite-based radar, or other types of satellite-based sensing. But, you know, the research group I came out of way back in the day was studying marine stratocumulus, the closed cell versus open cell. And there is new information because of that, because of the work that they did. There's also work being done on what's actually happening from a microphysics perspective in extratropical cyclones. And there are folks researching out west for sublimation and other things. So there's a variety of people studying these processes from an observationalist point of view. And I know when they publish those papers, they're often targeting the modeling community to say, hey, look at what these processes are that are going on. So yes, we don't have perfect knowledge, but there is a lot of there's a lot more knowledge than we've had in the past. So now I think it's it's really pulling that together. But the reality is, is that all these weather impacts are happening in real time. So the more we can, you know, get these into new models and also correct errors, like having this surface elevation incorrect in the model. I mean, that's, that's just an error. You know, now we need to communicate also this new knowledge into the models. There's another type of modeling community out there that's just emerged the machine learning, you know, artificial intelligence world, where instead of taking a physics-based model, they're, they're using a data model to predict what's going to happen from a weather and climate perspective. And I believe that there are some use cases and some advantages, and sometimes the, and on some specific use cases, they have demonstrated almost as good or better skill than our physics-based stuff. But using data models like that doesn't negate learning the processes and what's happening, particularly as assumptions about our systems change, right? So like if we if we have less of one thing or more of another in the system, it's going to react a little bit differently. And that's what happens as the general system, the climate changes, right? So, so we have to take that into account. I'm not quite sure yet that data models, which are machine learning, artificial intelligence, completely can capture that. Maybe they can. Maybe we can have a guest on who can talk to that at some point. Well, I think there's a lot of work uh, but, going on in that world. I think we should have a guest on to, to talk about that. I think where you're going, and I think I agree with, I'm going to forecast where you're going. And that's, you know, we need to be able to leverage both. We need to be able to leverage the benefits of dynamical models uh, but also be able to leverage the benefits of machine learning. And I think there's companies out there, uh, and even the Air Force is looking at this too, from a, how do we leverage the benefits of both physical and uh, data-driven models for prediction of weather and climate? I think, you know, that's going to be the future of modeling. There's one more thing. There's some discussion going on in communities, and there's a call for the World Meteorological Organization to name heat waves, kind of like we name hurricanes. And there was a really good public release from the WMO in the last couple of days that they have no plans to name heat waves. And we'll post a link in the show notes. But suffice to say, naming 
heat waves is more complex than it seems and it's more complex than even naming hurricanes we don't even agree on an international standard for for naming hurricanes i mean um the philippines has their own naming convention um indian ocean has their own hey what you've yeah so this is in the same thread it's an interrupt in the same thread but do you have stats on how many people are dying from heat or or the impacts of heat like so in europe where they don't have a lot of air conditioners clearly it's affecting people's um how they feel anyway i mean are people dying are there other impacts um so i don't have the straight statistics on on what's going on certainly not i mean we talked about the cat the heat drought impact the the cattle yep the the power grids in the u.s but what's the impact on people i mean how many people are dying i think i've seen marshall shepherd talk about that and a lot of people so I've yeah, I've put a, I put a LinkedIn post out there, and I'll have to find a a good link that shows that heat actually as a disaster, if you want to call it a, a disaster, heat as a disaster kills more people around the world than any other disaster. People want to think that hurricanes and flooding are the biggest killers, but heat actually kills more people than than other disasters so i'll find i'll find a good link for that so is it a failure to mitigate is it a failure to predict is it a yes to both is it you know i mean so uh, some disasters are surprises right a tornado how much of a heat yeah a tornado but particularly like tornadoes in florida because sometimes they're long track but they're not long track like the midwest but they spin up pretty quick and they're and they're gone so that happens a bit in Florida, but they're also only F-0s, F-1s, so there's some damage and sometimes people get caught up in them. But like my grandparents, apparently, back in March of 1993, they didn't die, but they did ride in it for 40 feet. <laughs> so the problem with heat, why, why, why did we not catch it? That's, or, you know, how, yeah, yeah, why, yeah. Why, are people, why are people dying when heat is actually one of the easiest things for us to predict? We can but if see- people don't have anywhere to go... Right. right. So when we saw that in Europe in, I think it was 2003, and there's massive heat casualties all across Europe because of a really, really bad heat wave and because they didn't have air conditioning. You know, a lot of Europe did not have air conditioning at the time. And a lot of Europe still does not have air conditioning. I guarantee you, though, after these last couple of summers that more and more Europeans are probably going to be getting air conditioning. Um, I mean, when I lived in Germany... We didn't have air conditioning. You open up the windows when you had hot days and, you know, we had some hot days, hot, humid days, but they were pretty few and far between. But as the climate continues to warm, these areas are going to be leveraging air conditioning. So the lack of air conditioning certainly was a a cause. You had people who didn't have anywhere to go. The other thing about heat casualties, and I'm looking forward to diving into this a little bit deeper with our next guest, Dr. Jesse Bell, is heat as a disaster it's insidious it's slow kind of like drought and the epidemiologists will back me up on this but one day of hot weather may harm some people it's the consecutive days of hot weather that catch up on people and and it's the impacts over that amount of time and people don't realize by they're in it on the third day of heat that their body has been under significant um, stress stress 
and so there's a lot of people who have heart attacks. There's a lot of people who, who have other ailments from heat stress that don't see it coming. Even though they know that it's going to be warm, it's going to be hotter. And when you have rolling brownouts or blackouts because of, of that during a heat wave, there's places like, you know, hospitals are on emergency generators, so they're, they're going to stay on, on power for the most part. But, you know, you get some of these assisted living homes that all of a sudden the air conditioning turns off and it doesn't take much, you know. So we should, we for... should talk to some local people, like some emergency managers to find out what they do for, for those types of places. Like there's got to be processes. I mean, well, hopefully local communities take that into account. There are communities that are kind of like tornado shelters or hurricane shelters. They've got these shelters that are heat shelters or in, in the winter, extreme cold shelters where they'll bring in homeless from the streets so they don't freeze on the streets. So for they, they can stay for a night or two nights or whatever the case is. So there are definitely things that communities are doing. Um, our predictions are getting better. The communication of these events are getting better. And so back to this idea of naming heat waves, the reason why people want to name heat waves is because they want more people to pay attention to them. That's the whole reason why they named hurricanes is not enough people were evacuating from coastlines. And so the thought process is similar, like, hey, well, if we just name heat waves, uh, then more people will pay attention to it. The, the problem is heat waves don't act and operate like hurricanes, um, you know, and heat does not affect everyone the same way that, say, if you're going to have storm surge or coastal flooding because of a hurricane, it's going to affect everyone along that part of the coast. The heat waves just don't act like that. And, and I think the WMO's concern is that they are going to take a bad situation and make it worse because it could create confusion. You're not going to have international agreement on how to apply it. So I think what you're going to see is local communities like California, for instance, in their legislature earlier this year have called for naming their heat waves. So you may see things like that, or maybe you'll have the Weather Channel coming up with their own heat wave naming convention like they do with for winter storms. Who knows? You know, this is our first podcast where the two of us have been able to kind of banter back and forth and talk about some weather and climate impacts. I'm, I'm excited for our next show with Dr. Jesse Bell, where we're going to dive into heat and health impacts. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's Triple Point podcast. If you liked it, give us a shout on your favorite podcast station and tell your friends about it. Or you can email us at triplepointpodcast at the number 81degrees.com. Until next time, have a great week. We're going to have to edit out like 10 minutes of laughing. Here. <laughs> That's great. Leave it in. Leave it in. It's good. <laughs> I don't even know why it's so funny. A couple of Muppets singing Menomina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to...